Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. We live in between D-Day and V-Day. During World War II, on June 6, 1944, the Allied forces enacted Operation Overlord on the shores of Normandy. And historically, that was referred to as the longest day, but in terms of the war, it would be called D-Day. And on this day, Allied forces gained a decisive victory against Hitler's Germany and the Axis forces. D-Day was the turning point of the war, which secured the ultimate victory. However, the war continued on for another 11 months. It didn't end until May 8th, 1945, the day history refers to as VE Day, Victory in Europe. And on VE Day, Berlin fell and Germany surrendered unconditionally. Between D-Day and VE Day, the battle raged on. There continued to be losses and casualties. The cross of Jesus Christ was D-Day. And on that day, Jesus gained a decisive victory over Satan. The devil is now a defeated foe, but he will not be vanquished until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that will be V-Day. So we live between this we live in this time period between D-Day and V-Day, between the cross and the parousia, between the crucifixion and the return of Christ, between the already and the not yet. And in this period of church history, wars are still being fought. Casualties are still incurred. Our foe is a defeated foe, but he is still a powerful enemy seeking to destroy us, seeking to do us as much damage as he can on his way out. So we need to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the devil's schemes. I've titled the message today, The Armor We Must Put On Each Day. It is a must. It is a daily must. So you should be in 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Resist him or you're going down. My brother-in-law was a fitness instructor and he would always say, work harder, not smarter. Because if you do it the smart way, you won't get as much exercise. But in the case of spiritual warfare, you better work smarter. You must put on the proper armor because that armor is the only thing that will stop the attack of the enemy. Today, we finish the book of Ephesians. And next week, along with baptisms, we will hear from you or some of you as to what the Lord has been teaching you through this study in Ephesians. Now, if you remember, going back to the beginning, chapter 1 through 3 is the theological section. Chapter 4 through 6 is the practical section. So in the first three chapters, we see that we are standing under the shower of God's blessings, living in the Jesus zone, where God has given us every spiritual blessing, grace, eternal life, peace, redemption, election, inheritance, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, adoption, entrance into the family of God, the dividing wall is gone, and he has strengthened us with his power. Chapter 4 through 6, God commands us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's called us to unity, to holiness, to purity, to thanksgiving, 
to submission. We're called to be godly wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, because we are in Christ. The problem is this. In between these commands and us obeying them, there is an enemy who seeks to destroy us. And I'm going to break the text down into three sections today. We have the preparation, the armor, and the benediction. Now, maybe it goes without saying, but a soldier never just starts putting armor on his naked body. There are some other garments that must go on first. So first we have the preparation. You have all these blessings. You have all these commands. And if you're going to be successful in the Christian life, you need to, number one, continually be strengthened by the Lord. It's not a one-time deal. It's a daily strengthening. Verse 10, finally, be strong. Finally, like after all of this teaching Paul's given us, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, I hope you know this. When you became a Christian, you enlisted in the army of God. You did not sign up for relaxation and warm summer breezes. You signed up for war. You now have a fierce, powerful enemy and a target on your chest. So you need to be strengthened. But how? How do you continually be empowered by God? Paul says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. So first notice that it's the whole armor. You need to put it all on. You need every piece. Also be encouraged that it is the whole armor. Or as some translations say, the full armor. Meaning it's all you need. It is fully sufficient for the battles you will face. So I'm going to give you everything you need today. You don't believe that, but you need to believe that because it's true. It is the full armor of God. The next part is it is of God. It's the armor of God in a few senses. First, this armor is from God. If you join the military, they don't tell you to go get your own armor. You know, before you come to boot camp, swing by Target and get those weapons you need. No, the armor is provided for the soldier. And this armor is given to us by God. We do not fight with worldly weapons. They don't work, by the way. You keep trying them over and over. They keep failing you. Quit it. Start using God's weapons. We fight with powerful spiritual weapons and we have strong protective armor that is given to us by God so we can trust it. Imagine a highly trained, physically fit soldier and he goes to war with no armor and no weapons. His six-pack and his bulging muscles will do him no good. He's toast. But you give that guy some body armor and a weapon, and now he can do some damage. Even the best of us, if we go out into the battle of the day without God's armor, we are in serious trouble. This armor is from God, but it's also God's armor. It's the armor that he wears and uses to get his victories. We've seen this armor before. Isaiah 49 verse 2 says that Christ will have a mouth like a sharp sword speaking the word of God. Isaiah 52 7 says his feet are shod with the good news proclaiming peace and salvation. Isaiah 59:17 says that the coming Messiah will wear the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. So when you put on this armor, you are putting on God's very own armor. You're getting the good stuff. And unlike the armor that David got from Saul, your armor will fit you perfectly. It will suit you perfectly. 
well. When the devil sees you coming, when he sees the armor, he says, uh-oh, I've seen that armor before. And when I face that armor, I always lose. Why? Because this is God's armor. This armor protects you. It empowers you to fight your enemy. And it gives you courage to stand strong in the heat of battle. Number two, know your enemy and how he works. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil schemes. He is plotting your demise. Sports teams spend hours and hours off the court in the classroom, watching video of their opposing teams. They evaluate the strengths and the weaknesses of those teams. They plan how to defend against the strengths. They strategize how to exploit the weaknesses. Danny Hebron and I are coaching little girls basketball. And guess where we were two weeks ago? We were watching the other teams play. And you better believe it. We were paying attention to their strengths and their weaknesses. We were looking for vulnerabilities. We were plotting their demise. Just like the devil. <laughs> Psalm 139, 16 through 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. God is thinking about you all the time. He has many thoughts about you. But also, the devil is thinking about you all the time. He is analyzing you. He is considering how to exploit your weaknesses. He is watching the clock. He's looking for an opportune time when you are at your weakest point so that he can come and destroy you. He does not want a fair fight. He wants to take you down. In chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians, we see Paul talking about walking in the ways of the Lord. In chapter 6, we see him talking about standing in the strength of the Lord. Verse 11, stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, withstand in the evil day. Verse 13 again, stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, if we are honest, our biggest concern usually isn't the devil. We're not too worried about marching into our day without God's armor on. We care more about our mortgage or those kids that are driving us crazy. We're distracted by work and relationships, the weather, our favorite sports teams, go Padres. And we're, lo we're losing battles because we don't even know where the war is. Verse 12 is a wake-up call for us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Your battle is not with your wife or your boss. Your battle is with sinister, demonic forces that are strategizing your demise. That are strategizing ways of putting division in your relationships. Do not be unaware. This is a spiritual battle and it can only be won with spiritual weapons. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. So you are called to take a stand against evil. Paul says, having done all, give it your all. Our girls basketball team is currently tied for first place. We have beaten teams that are better than us. Why? Partly because Danny knows how to play basketball, but also because our girls are aggressive 
They give it their all. We have one that's not aggressive yet. I told her to stand in front of the mirror every day and go, like that. And so we're working on. But she'll come around. Now, some of them are pretty beginner without a lot of skill, but they try hard. Remember, battles are bloody. Lives are lost. You don't fight wars half-heartedly. You give it your all or you die. Stand firm, feet on the rock, do not be moved, hold your ground. You are strengthened for battle when you put on the whole armor of God. And each of these pieces reminds us of the character of God. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the footplates of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Our God is a God of truth and righteousness. He is the spirit of faithfulness and peace. Now let's look at this armor piece by piece. Number one, we have the belt of truth. Verse 14 Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, some translations say that you have girded your loins with the belt of truth. The Roman belt was like a girdle. Now, my belt here is about an inch thick, or inch wide, but the Roman belt was a little less than a foot wide. It was used to fasten the breastplate in place and to hold the sword because truth holds the armor together. Without truth, it falls apart. You know, sometimes we're tempted to put truth aside in our ministry. You've got to be very careful about that. Truth holds it together. You're not going to be victorious without the truth. Now, the best modern equivalent would be a weightlifting belt. And studies have shown that these weightlifting belts, they support the core and they actually strengthen your lower back muscles so that you can lift greater weight. Weightlifters say that the belt inspires them. You ever see a guy at the gym walking around with a weightlifting belt? They walk a little different. They feel powerful. You think they look ridiculous, but they feel powerful. The belt of truth gives us courage and determination to face our enemy. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. So what is this truth that Paul is talking about? Now, it's true that I brushed my teeth today. I'm sure you're pleased to know that. But is that the truth that God wants me to put on? You know, and I... Am I just supposed to remind myself of random facts of life or even random facts on the Bible? Day four, God created the sun, moon, and the stars. Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. You know, are these the truths that I need to put on? Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Word of truth, comma, the gospel. It is gospel truth that we need to put on each day. How do we put that on? We do so by reminding ourselves of gospel truth. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. I know that I am a sinner saved by grace. I am God's adopted child. These are the greatest truths about my life. These are gospel truths that I need to remind myself of every day in order to be ready for the battle ahead of me. Now, as we go through the various pieces of armor, we will see that each piece has to do with aspects of the gospel. You can keep cross-referencing it with Ephesians 1.13. And so when you're putting the armor on, you're clothing yourself with gospel. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14, stand therefore having put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's literally the breastplate of the righteousness. So Paul is speaking of a specific righteousness and spoiler alert, he's not referring to your good deeds. 
The good news of the gospel is that there has been a great exchange. Christ obeyed the law perfectly. I did not. Christ obeyed. I sinned. Jesus has acquired a record of perfect righteousness. Jesus checks all the boxes. But I have broken the law over and over. I have acquired a record of sinfulness. I check a different set of boxes. And at the great exchange, Christ's righteousness has been given to me and my sinfulness has been given to Jesus. Jesus took my sinfulness to the cross so that it could be obliterated and I could be completely forgiven. And now I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when God looks at me, he does not see my wretchedness. He sees Christ's righteousness. I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You may see my wretchedness, but God does not. The goodness of Christ is the righteousness that Paul is referring to. And to put on the breastplate of the righteousness is to remind myself of that fact. When I'm feeling dirty and sinful, it's easy to think, why stop? Why try? I'm a mess already. I've blown it so many times, I might as well commit a few more sins. But when I see myself as clothed in Christ's righteousness, there is a dissonance between his righteousness and my sinful behavior. And it makes me feel uncomfortable. I become alarmed. What am I thinking? Why would I even consider doing that? This is not who I am. I am the righteousness of Christ. I have the breastplate of righteousness. Therefore, I will take my stand against the devil. And I will turn away from evil and obey the Lord. In those moments, what am I doing? I'm meditating on my justification. An alien righteousness has been granted to me. I have been made righteous that is my justification. And we help each other put on the breastplate. When our brother falls into sin, when he's looking at his own behavior and feeling dirty, feeling like a complete failure, feeling like he doesn't even know if he's saved, in those moments, you have to remind him where his righteousness comes from. It's not from his track record. It's not from his good behavior. He is righteous because he is clothed in Jesus Christ. Milton Vincent, Carolyn's old pastor, tells a story about visiting an older brother in the church named Vernon Anderson. And Vernon had been a committed follower of Jesus Christ for many years. But in his final days, as his body was wasting away, he struggled with doubts. Milton saw this haunted look on Vernon's face and he asked him, what are you thinking about, Vernon? And Vernon responded, Milton, do you suppose this is happening to me because I'm under the judgment of God? Milton was side by side with a brother who had been wounded in the fight he responded by helping Vernon to put on his breastplate of righteousness. Milton says, and when we were done, just after a couple minutes of rehearsing the gospel, Vernon's face lit up, and with a pensive smile, he said, yeah, I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. Milton says, you know what? I hate the devil for attacking my brother in his moment of weakness. When he didn't even have the physical strength and hardly the spiritual strength to get his breastplate of righteousness even on, the devil is assaulting him. And on those occasions, he needed the help of a brother 
to get his breastplate of righteousness on. But once he got it on, he was protected. Number three, gospel shoes. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, many commentators refer to the sword as the only offensive weapon. However, the shoes of a Roman soldier had metal spikes on the bottom. And I remember as a kid playing soccer, spiked shoes were not allowed. They were dangerous. And a Roman soldier in battle could run those spikes down the leg of his opponent, cutting through the flesh of the thighs. He could bring them down in the front and crush his enemy's feet. So some commentators argue that the shoes are also an offensive weapon. Note that it was the shoes of the gospel that Jesus Christ himself used to crush the head of Satan on the cross. These spikes would also stick into the ground and allow the Roman soldier to stand strong against an opponent. He could not be pushed back because his shoes would grip the land. Meditating on what Christ has done for you, that you're chosen, forgiven, and loved by God, these gospel truths ground you, and they help you stand firm in battle. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. And studies show that shoes actually help with endurance. You can walk further and accomplish more when you're wearing shoes, especially when you're wearing these shoes. Now, if you cut off a soldier's feet, he's done for. He's either going to lie there and bleed to death, or he's going to do the army crawl until someone puts a bullet in his head. We need our feet protected so that we can stand strong in the gospel. So, and so that we can bring this message to others. Verse 15 here, Paul is alluding to the beautiful feet of Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3. Gospel is, the gospel is news. And news, whether it's good or bad, news spreads. Did you hear the news? And the gospel has feet, your feet. It was someone else's feet that brought the gospel to you, and it will be your feet that bring the gospel to others. These are shoes of readiness. Now, when I say, kids, are you ready to go? I mean, are there shoes on your feet? And 1 Peter 3.15 says to keep your shoes on. Always be prepared to give an answer. So verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Be ready. And as you put on the gospel, you remind yourself of the great things that the Lord has done for you. And in your heart wells up a desire that God would do the same for other people. That he might grant them godly sorrow, repentance, and faith. Number four, the shield of faith. Verse 16 in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. All circumstances, all the darts. The Roman soldier's shield was large enough to protect the whole body. It was made of wood and covered with leather. The soldiers would dip the shield into water before the battle so that flaming arrows could not set their shield on fire. Now, the devil isn't necessarily looking to kill you. He wants to set you on fire. He wants to ignite you with the flames of anger, 
hatred, lust, envy, and rebellion so that he can use you for his purposes. Satan loves to repurpose Christians and use them for his evil plans. Has the devil ever used a Christian in your life? Now, this shield that the Lord has for you extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. That's a pretty big promise. Roman soldiers would set the bottom of these massive shields on the ground and they would hide behind them when the fiery arrows went flying. They would connect their shields to create a wall in front of them and the soldiers behind them would put their shields up to create a roof above their heads as they would fight together. Remember that in the church, no one fights alone. We fight these battles together. And know this, that every spiritual battle, every temptation is a battle of faith. If you believe God's promises, you win. How are you going to resist temptation? By believing God's promises and rejecting Satan's lies. Satan comes to you and says, sin for a season will give you happiness. And in those moments, you need to believe God's promise that godliness is profitable for all things. 1 Timothy 4.8. You need to believe that the joy of the Lord is your strength and that the lasting fulfillment that comes from obedience and walking close to the Lord is better than any fleeting pleasure that sin can give you. I promise you, it is worth it to say no to sin. The Bible makes that clear. The New King James says, above all, take up the shield of faith. Why? Because when you are believing the gospel and hoping in God's promises, you don't sin. When faith is strong, you will experience God's victory every time. Again, this is the shield of the faith. So we're talking about faith in the gospel, faith in Christ and in gospel truths. Number five, in verse 17, we have the helmet of salvation. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Ancient helmets were either made of leather or cast iron. They protected the head. The head is the command center of the body. No matter how strong they are, the arms and the legs are useless without the head. Try it sometime. Maybe don't. But the head must be protected. So put on your helmet of salvation. Now, what does that mean? Is this talking about initial salvation? Is Paul saying, get saved? I don't think so. Because, no, this man is already a soldier in the army of God. He is already wearing the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verse 8. Paul tells us to put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. If you are not confident of your salvation, you are not ready for the battles of the day. You need this hope. John MacArthur says it this way, I'm convinced that if you believe you can lose your salvation, you are ill-equipped to engage in the battle. That is why Paul is so explicit that you cannot lose your salvation. He is adamant. Ephesians 1 verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. If God chose you before you had ever done anything good or bad, if God chose you knowing every sin that you would ever commit, if God chose you not because of any goodness in yourself or any good thing you ever would do in the future, then your salvation is secure. And it has always been secure since the foundation of the world. 
He saved us, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's humbling. I am not God's first draft pick. God is not lucky to have me. I am astoundingly blessed that he has adopted me and chosen to love me as his very own child. And I don't care what enemies I face. I have courage to face them because I know that my Abba Father will always be with me. As Tim sang earlier, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. So I don't care what enemies I face. He saved me so I cannot unsave me. I'm not just his soldier. I am his adopted son. I'm on his side. So the victory is sure. I cannot lose. John MacArthur continues. He says, if you're not sure you can win, you very likely will be tempted to turn into some kind of monk who flees from any threat at all. It makes a huge difference. You can't lose. That is the promise of Scripture. Jesus emphasizes the security of the believer in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, guaranteed. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Rest assured, Christ will not lose you. He will not let go of you. MacArthur says, I don't know that I could do ministry and at the same time worry that I could take a step in one direction and lose my salvation. I don't know that I could confront the issues in the world if I lived in mortal fear that every time I put myself in such a position, Satan could enter my life or enter my home or enter my family and wreak havoc all over the place. And at the end of it all would be I could end up in hell. There's a lot of people who believe that and it paralyzes them in battle. First John 5.13, I hope this seals the deal for you. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You need to know that as you step into your day. When you know that you can't lose your salvation, everything changes for you. Mark MacArthur says, you can engage yourself in the struggle fully confident that you will not be defeated. You have the promise of eternal heaven. Number six, verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And first notice that it's the sword of of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Now, this could mean that it's given to us by the Holy Spirit, which is true. It's, it's the Spirit's sword. The Bible was given to us by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures were created as Spirit-led men wrote them. John 16, 13, again, we see this connection between the word and the spirit. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. What greater truth is there than the word of God? And perhaps the Lord included the words of the spirit to remind us that the scriptures should never be separated from the one who spoke them. I don't know if you're like me, but I've always stumbled over that phrase, of the Spirit. I just wanted to say, the sword, which is the word of God. And I like trip over of the Spirit. But I think God wants us to know that the Bible should never be severed from the one who is given to us to guide us in understanding it. 
We understand and we use the scriptures in the context of a relationship with God so that we do not use them wrongly. So that we do not use them to harm God's children, but rather to build them up. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. Now the sword is as much a defensive weapon as it is an offensive weapon. Often the soldier will use the sword to parry off or block the blows of his opponent far more than he uses to inflict harm. The soldier can also use this sword to help a comrade, to cut out an infection, to remove gangrene. You're in Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 12, a familiar passage. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is a fierce weapon against the enemy, but it is also the surgeon's blade used to make one well. The word Paul uses here for sword is makaira, which is a short sword that was usually between 12 to 18 inches long. It was not the romphaya, the long sword that was wielded with two hands, but rather a short sword used in hand-to-hand combat. It could be referred to as a dagger. I think of Crocodile Dundee, you call that a knife. The sword is the word of God or the rhema of God. And rhema means a specific statement of scripture that defends or attacks at a certain point. Now, I know there's some differences of opinion on rhema. Some people think it's like a, uh, like a spirit-given word as well. Um, but this is a very focused use of the scripture. Here, rhema is used to refer to the word of God. And Jesus engaged the devil in hand-to-hand combat when he was tempted in the desert. He responded to every attack by quoting the scriptures. And in so doing, he was victorious against Satan. Roman soldiers always had the Machaira on hand. Never be without your sword. Now you might ask, how do we know that we can trust the Bible? How do we know we've got the right books? I remember in youth group years ago, someone asking our youth pastor, how do we know that the Bible is true? And he said, you just believe it. And I would say, wrong answer. (laughs) Why don't I just believe the Bhagavad Gita? Why don't I just believe the Quran? You know, there's a reason why we believe this book is scripture and the others are not. The Bible contains 66 books, 39 Old Testament and 27 New Testament. It was written over a period of 1600 years by 40 different authors with different backgrounds in different time periods. So, and, and to see why you believe the Bible, you got to break it out in Old Testament and New Testament. So first, why do we believe the Old Testament? Mainly, we trust the Old Testament because Jesus trusted the Old Testament. Jesus, who rose from the dead, believed in the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He quoted from the Old Testament scriptures over and over again. So church fathers acknowledged very early on that the books of the Old Testament were sacred scripture. There was and there is very little controversy on this. By AD 250, pretty much all Christians agreed on the canon of the Old Testament scripture. Now moving to the New Testament, why do we trust the New Testament? Many of the New Testament books, probably most of them, were written, they were, they were written, they were either written by apostles or people who were very close to an apostle. So apostles like Matthew, Paul, John. Mark was a close companion of Peter. And some call, scholars refer to Mark's gospel as Peter's gospel. Peter referred to Paul's writings as being scripture in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Luke was a close companion of Paul. 
And Paul refers to Luke's writings as being scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. Now, there has been some debates over a few books. There is debate about the Apocrypha. But the vast majority of Hebrew scholars agree that though the book of the books of the Apocrypha may be helpful historically or even religiously, they are not authoritative. And even with the New Testament, there is very little debate about which books are considered to be authoritative. The church fathers were merely recognizing what was basically common knowledge in the church. In the, at the Council of Hippo in AD 393 and the Council of Carthage in AD 397, both councils affirmed the same 27 books as being God's word. Add to that hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, astounding moral and practical wisdom, a, and boatloads of archaeological discoveries backing up the authenticity, authenticity of the Bible. No other book is anywhere close to Scripture. It stands alone. What is the sword? It is the Word of God. Ephesians 1.13, again, Paul speaks of the Word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. So primarily, the word we are using in battle is the gospel word. We have great confidence in the word of God. It is true. It is living and active. It saves us. And as you are led by the Holy Spirit, God's word is powerfully effective in fighting the battles you face each day. Number seven, prayer. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Verse 18, Paul says all four times. He is pretty passionate about the importance of prayer. This is part of using the armor. Paul doesn't even start a new sentence. He says, wear the armor and pray all the time. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Stay alert in prayer. Persevere in prayer. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. Paul says in verse 19, Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Pray for me that I would have gospel boldness Pray that I would use my sword well, for my job is to speak the word of God. Verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains, Paul's in prison at this time, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Then Paul concludes his letter in verses 21 through 24 with what I call the benediction. And notice there's no big long list of greetings like Paul has in many of his other letters. Verse 21. So that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Verse 22. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is probably the one who delivered the letter. His name means casual or by chance. And yet he's the one specifically chosen to deliver this very purposeful, serious letter. Paul says, Tychicus will tell you about me and how I'm doing. Now you might ask, but isn't that what the letter is for? No. Paul talks very little about himself in Ephesians. No time. My goal here is not that you would know me, but that you would know Christ and the power of his gospel. And then he concludes with verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Verse 22, Tychicus is sent to encourage. Verse 24, Paul says, grace to you. Ephesians in a nutshell is this, encouraged by grace. That's what the whole book is about. 
three chapters of rich gospel, two and a half chapters of practical commands, and we are empowered to obey these commands as we put on the gospel and as we are encouraged by grace. Girls, it's time to accessorize. Boys, suit up. Why is an NFL football player able to receive a kickoff and charge down the field at breakneck speeds against 11 massive human beings all running right at him, all trying to take him down? Yes, because he gets a lot of money, but also because he's wearing all this protective gear. You take off that protective gear, that body armor, and I guarantee you that very same player will head down the field a bit more gingerly. The armor we wear is effective offensively and defensively, but it is also effective at making us brave, at making us feel powerful in Christ. So that we have courage to charge boldly into battle. Each day you wake up, remind yourself of these gospel truths. For this is how you put the armor on. Put on truth, righteousness, and faith. Remind yourself that you can never lose your salvation. Be spirit-led as you read the word. And clothe yourself with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every day, start your day by being encouraged by grace. One pastor says he puts on his armor by quoting to himself this little poem. A sinner I am, God's wrath I deserve. But Christ died my death, my life to preserve. Forgiven I am, with righteousness dressed. With God always for me, forever I'm blessed. Why don't you stand? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, this has been a rich study as we have gone through the book of Ephesians. Thank you for these precious promises and these amazing gospel truths. Lord, please rally the troops today. Encourage them with grace. Give them assurance that you have claimed them for yourself before the foundation of the world and that you will never lose them. Thank you, God, for allowing us to wear your armor. Thank you that you give us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to be victorious in the battles that we face today. 